0: There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website.
1: Please stand, and we'll begin in prayer. This evening's prayer is taken from the Divine Office for, for Easter. It's a hymn in honor of the Virgin Mary. The angel cried out to the one who was full of grace, Hail, O Immaculate Virgin, and again I say hail, for your Son is risen from the tomb on the third day. Shine, shine, O new Jerusalem, for the glory of the Lord has shone upon you. Rejoice and be glad, O Sion, and you, O pure one, rejoice in the resurrection of your Son. Christ is risen. Indeed he is risen. Thank you, Father Joseph. Please welcome back Dr. John Cutterback. Um Thank you. Um, as I was listening to that story and a half, I, which seems more like two, but my math isn't as good as the deacon's. Um, uh, I, I actually, I, 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 can, I can literally only imagine what it would be like to be on the Sea of Galilee. And uh, an, an article in the, in the second part of the Sumer that um, I was going to say that you read for today. No, you didn't read the whole second part of the Sumer that we'll be looking at today. It talks about how, while intrinsically, considerations of the Godhead in itself are the most worthy kinds of considerations. They are the highest things to look at. Nonetheless, given the human mode of knowing, to look at things that are easier for us to imagine, namely those things that Christ did in the flesh, are the things that are the most powerful for arousing devotion in us. Given the human mode of knowing, and of course, our Lord, knowing this so well, designed, we might say, his life as well as everything in the cosmos for our good. But all those, all those little things, just as the deacon was speaking, I just was thinking, what would it be like to hear the seagulls and to smell the water where, where he was? And, 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 it's, and it's fitting and right to have that kind of thought. As, as humans, we, we especially need things that our senses can grasp and that turn our thoughts to higher things. In any case, thank you, Deacon. All right. Today, ladies and gentlemen, we are on the third of four weeks. Quick, quick reminder of where we are. We're looking at, we're looking at the Summa. Of theology, Saint Thomas Aquinas, thirteenth century. In our first week together, we spent most of the time looking at who Saint Thomas Aquinas is. We particularly looked at his Dominican vocation, which we characterized particularly in terms of receiving the word and then living the word, sharing the word. Pardon me, receiving then communicating and living the living the word. We understood this summation of theology to be very much a part of his Dominican vocation. We then went on last week to take the first part of the three parts, the Summa. So the Summa is divided into three parts. So for the second, third, and fourth week, we are going to look at one of those major parts. So last week, we looked at the Prima Pars, which, as we saw, was on God and things coming forth from God. I'm just going to slip over this way for a moment. Don't, don't worry too much there. I'm not, that's, that's, that's all right. Again, when we talk about the three parts, I noted last time that I'm never going to just put the Roman numeral 2 for there never is anything that's just the Roman numeral 2. The se- second part is the first part of the second part and the second part of the second part. And then the third here so we have we have god and creation right? things proceeding from god first looking at god in himself looking at god's nature then looking at the distinction of the person then going on to creation things coming forth from god and we particularly thought in terms of seeing things as coming forth from god as first principle in this great exitus slash reditus theme of the Summa, that the very structure of the Summa itself is a way of showing, of illuminating, of illustrating St. Thomas Aquinas' worldview, that it is divided into these three parts, But first of all, we look at the first principle. We look at how things have come forth from him. We focused especially on how the coming forth was rooted in love. It was rooted in generosity, this being that is all perfect. There is no other good reason. Indeed, you can even say this philosophically, and it is also borne out perfectly theologically. There is no other good reason why this first being that has all perfection, that has all happiness, would create other than... Those other ways could, but really, the most reasonable and fitting and indeed we find out from the Vaughan Revelation, it is true, that the reason that this being has created is pure, pure generosity. And we tried to go inside that a little bit last time, looking at that text that showed that how God alone is in a situation where he can be perfectly liberal, perfectly generous. Because he has nothing to gain. So in a very important way, it is all about sharing. God in himself, something we didn't look at so much last time, God himself being a community of persons, a community of love, that love overflows and is shared. We'll look more today about how that love as being the principle is going to give us the key to understanding the return. And again, this is how the whole structure works. The more we understand about who God is, about what God is, and how things have come forth from him, that will always be the key to understanding how things are designed to return to him. So one thing I'd I'd like to open today by saying, St. Thomas Aquinas would say philosophically, and then it gets to be borne out theologically, look at this amazing creation that is man. Look at him very carefully. And it should be absolutely evident to us whence he came and what he is for. What he is made for. It is written into him. It has formed every aspect of us. One of the articles we looked at last time is is the human body... Fittingly disposed and designed. We saw how, in the very structure of this material thing that is me, that is my body, we see literally incarnated the vocation of man. The vocation of man to know, the vocation of man to love. So we look at the creature, and in the creature will be clear. The design, the plan. How do we go back? Or at least the basic principles of it. God will have to continue to teach us in other ways, and we'll see, including supernatural ways. But our part two is all about the return of rational creatures. The cosmos, ladies and gentlemen, is about rational creatures. The beauty, the dignity, and nobility of lower creatures is, in fact, therein preserved. One of the great misunderstandings that we see around us at times is we're told that it's not appropriate for us to think of ourselves as being higher than other animals, higher than lower creation. Indeed, rather... What we see in the wisdom of the ages, what we see in the wisdom of our faith, what we see in the wisdom of St. Thomas Aquinas is, in fact, the greatest dignity of lower creatures is the amazing role the lower creatures can have in our return to God. But ultimately, it's about our return to God. We who are made in His image, it's fundamentally about us And from their ability, from their role to serve us in our return comes their great importance. So I say we actually will better understand the importance of lower creatures when we see them precisely as lower but as designed to serve us in the fundamental purpose of creation. Namely, that those creatures that have come forth from God in His image will be able, astoundingly, to in some sense return. And we need to look more closely today at what that return looks like. And then our final, for next time, again, will be on Christ's. The way. The third part is now we need to look at Christ, the Word become flesh, in order to see in Him who walked among us, who died, who rose, the ultimate and only way to be able to complete the return that we have studied here in part two. Do you have your handouts? on hand. And what we're going to do is first of all take a look at the basic structure of the second part. So, in what I've done here on the first side of the handout, the first page of the handout, so front and back, two pages if you're online, is put the prologues to the different key questions that will give us the sense of how things progress in this first part of the second part. So I'm going to take you through that, and we're going to basically see what the, what the structure of the summa here and the second part is looking like, and we're going to learn a lot about the basic aspects of our return. And then I want to focus our attention in on a couple of specific things that are worth our emphasizing, and we'll look at a couple more specific texts, including the two that I assigned to you to read for today. And don't let me forget to give you your assignment for next week, but I don't want to stop to to do that right now. So let's go ahead and jump in to the prologue of the second part. The prologue to the second part. So really, that would be the prologue to both parts of the second part. And the entirety of that prologue is that little paragraph at the top of your page, which I will now read out loud. Since... As Damascene, of course, St. John Damascene, father of the church, as St. John Damascene states, man is said to be made in God's image insofar as the image implies an intelligent being endowed with free will and self-movement. That's the quotation from John Damascene. Man is an image, as far as image means, an intelligent being endowed with free will and self-movement. Now, St. Thomas proceeds, now that we have treated of the exemplar, the origin, that is, i.e., in Latin, i.e., est, that is, God, and of those things which came forth from the power of God in accordance with His will, it remains for us to treat of His image, that is, man, inasmuch as He, too, is the principle of his actions as having free will and control of his actions. Ladies and gentlemen, there is so much in this long sentence there. So much of the whole picture of life is given right there, as well as the fundamental view of theology. Our study of theology has begun with The first principle, begins and ends with God. In a sense, it's always about God and God's generosity to us. We have looked at God. We have seen some key aspects of who slash what he is and thus how things have come forth from him. That's the basis now for looking at, all right, here is the rational creature man made in his image So, he has certain key things in common with the first principle. So, just as we saw certain things about God and things coming forth from him, that's the basis for our understanding. The key in what has come forth from him, the rational creature, is made in his image. And so, we learn about what the return will look like by having learned what the coming forth looks like. Like. Again, we learned what the, ex- what the raditus will be like. What will the return be like based upon what was the exodus, the coming forth from God, like? And look what he focuses our attention on. This might seem a bit dry, but I hope that you'll see it's, it's, it's not. It's in fact very rich. We treated of the exemplar, that is God. And of those things which came forth from the power of God in accordance with his will. So, may I suggest what St. Thomas just said right there is this. In the eternal chambers, God saw something, he loved it, and he willed it to be. It says things came forth from the power of God in accordance with his will. Whenever you talk about will, you're talking about something that follows upon Intellect. Will always follows upon intellect. So how has he, he re-encapsulated for you what we had seen in the first part? Things came forth from God in accordance with his will. And I'm just, that, that sounds like just a throwaway line. Well, of course, things came forth from in accordance with his will. How else would they come forth from him? But we need to look a little closer. In the eternal chambers, God saw something. God loved something, and he willed it to be. And ladies and gentlemen, I present for your consideration, our return to him is exactly like that. We need to see something. We need to love it, and then we will it. And then our actions will bring us back to him, just as in creating us, his actions were actions of he sees, and by sees I mean understands something. God understood something, he loved it, and he, he thus willed it into being. He's saying the structure is the same in us. Do you see how that does not happen, ladies and gentlemen, even in noble trees, indeed, even in noble pigs. You don't have a structure where there's an understanding, then a loving and a willing, a moving oneself then to act along those lines, saying, that's exactly how God brought us into existence. And so, our return to Him, in a sense, is that simple. Will we, will we look and understand what we need to understand? For it must begin with understanding. You'll see that structure throughout. That's why faith, ladies and gentlemen, will always have to come before hope and charity. Because faith pertains to understanding. You can't have hope and charity unless there's first faith. We'll see this structure all along. There must be that understanding, then that response of love, and then we simply freely determine our actions in accord with what we've seen and loved, and in that way, our return will look just like the one who made us in its fundamental structure. All right. So he's, St. Thomas is saying, watch for that now. It's going to be. It's going to be, as it were. A a, a highly intellectual and loving process. Just as creation was a very intellectual and loving process, our return is going to have that same structure. So that gives us the basis then for the structure of his examination of it. Let's go on. First part of the second part, question one, there's a little prologue. I told you in general, In the Summa, it always is questions and then the articles within it. Very few questions have a prologue to them. But in the first part the second part, particularly because it is such a masterpiece of organization, at the beginning of certain questions, he has a very brief little prologue to give you a sense of where he is in the structure. And those are the ones that I've lifted out and put right on this page here for you. So look at then, following upon the prologue to the whole second part, which is that which we just gave reading out loud. Now we turn to the first question of the first part of the second part and look at the prologue there. In this matter, we shall consider first the last end of human life. And secondly, those things by means of which man may advance advance towards this end or stray from the path. For the end is the rule of whatever is ordained. I'm going to use the word ordered. The end is the rule of whatever is ordered to the end. Ladies and gentlemen, again, that sentence right there has the whole program right in it. One, One of the greatest signs that you're dealing with the Master that you're dealing with the wise man, is he knows how to formulate the basic principles through which you grasp the whole. Wisdom, always remember, is about grasping the big picture through the principles that make the big picture be what it is. That's why wisdom is what it is. There are certain key truths that are, as it were, the governing truths. When we see them, we have the foundation for seeing the other things. And this is one of them right here. He's telling us that he's going to begin this whole second part, which is, again, far and away the largest part of the Summa. He's going to begin it with what is normally called the treatise on happiness. It's the first five questions of the first part of the second part are what are called the treatise on happiness. And what he's saying is you always begin with the ends. Now, we need to understand he he gets this word end from Aristotle, ladies and gentlemen. He gets this word, end. What does he mean by end? Aristotle was very careful about this. End can be used in different ways. End can just mean where something stops. Or, end can mean that completion and perfection that this is all about. And, of course, that's what he's talking about here. End in the sense of the completion or perfection that... Human life is all about. The rational life is all about. Indeed, you can say the creation itself is all about. In, we shall consider first the last end of human life. That which is the perfection. That which is the reason for everything else. That which is the perfection, the completion for which we were made. It says, and then, and secondly, those things by means of which man may advance towards this end or stray from the path. Four, and why does he say four? What he's saying is you have to consider first things first. First, we're going to look at the end, and then having looked at the end, we'll then be able to look at how you get there or not. In a sense, it's, it, it, it's profoundly elementary, We have to begin by having as clear a picture as we can of what the perfection, what the completion is. When we see that, then we'll be in the position to say, ah, in view of that, we will judge everything else. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what is written into this clause that if if, if we were to choose... A, 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 a list of several principles that are just the most overarching in St. Thomas's whole work. That last clause right there would absolutely be one of them. For the end is the rule. We're going to see this again in a few other texts. He, he will say sometimes rule or the measure. The end is the rule or the measure of whatever is ordered to the end. If we're going to understand all the things that are for the sake of the end, we must understand the end because the end is the rule and the measure of them. See how that is the foundational principle of the moral life. It is the foundational principle of understanding the return. We have to understand where we're trying to get to, then we will ask in a very simple way, what will it look like to get us there? What things will get us there, what things will not? And then we'll look at that then further right now in the next prologue. Since, therefore, happiness, happiness at this point is, is his name, ladies and gentlemen, for the perfection, for the completion of human nature. It is important that we understand and I'm just going to say this and, and, and move on because you understand here we're, we're, we're trying to do an overarching thing so there'll be all kinds of things that we, we're not going to be able to treat in a satisfactory way. The term happiness for him is, is not in any way a subjective feeling. In any way, it's not essentially, it involves subjective feelings. It's not fundamentally a subjective feeling. Happiness is an objective state of flourishing. Happiness here is an objective state of the perfection and flourishing of human nature. That's what he means by happiness, an objective flourishing of human nature. In Latin, it's beatitudo. But I think done properly, it's okay to render that in English as happiness as long as we distinguish it from some common uses of happiness today. I go on, therefore, since therefore happiness is to be gained by means of certain acts we must in due sequence consider human acts in order to know by what acts we may obtain happiness and by what acts we are prevented from obtaining it. But because operation and acts are concerned with things singular, consequently all practical knowledge is incomplete unless it take account of things in detail. The study of morals therefore since it treats of human acts should consider first the general principles and secondly matters of detail. Just so you know, that's the division between first part of the second part and the second part. In general, basic principles is first part of the second part, and then looking at things in greater detail, more particularly, comes in the second part of the second part, where we will not spend much time. Going a little further here. In treating of the general principles, the points that offer themselves for our consideration are human acts themselves and their principles. I'm going to move through this quickly. I want you at least to be introduced if you want to be able to come back and read this on your own. I want you to be able to see how the structure is set up and how to discern what that structure is. And just, this is a good introduction to ever reading St. Thomas, but this is normally how he goes about things. So in treating of the general principles, the points that offer themselves for our consideration are human acts themselves, then their principles. Of human acts... Some are proper to man. What proper to man means is they only belong to humans. Others are common to men and animals. Since happiness is man's proper good, those acts which are proper to man, and the word for proper is unique, have a closer connection with happiness than than have those which are common to man and other animals. First, then, we must consider those acts which are proper to man. Secondly, those acts which are common to man and the other animals and are called passions. Note here, he is going to look at passions. There is a significant treatise on passions here for to be able to understand the return of rational creatures, namely human rational creatures. These amazing things called passions, which very much involve the body, what he calls passions angels do not have. These need to be understood because they are an essential part of the moral life. And indeed, two of the four cardinal virtues precisely have to do with passions. And those two are courage and temperance. Courage especially having to do with the passion of fear. And temperance especially having to do with the passion of desire. So, interestingly, two of the four cardinal virtues will deal specifically with those things that we, to a certain extent, share in common with animals, lower animals, namely the passions. We're not going to look any further at passions, but a beautiful part of the first part of the second part is on passions and their distinction. Now I go on to the next prologue, question 49. After treating of human acts and passions, we now pass on to consider the principles of human acts. So watch how things have progressed here in the first part of the second part. We began with the treatise on happiness. Then wherein we see what the end is. Having seen what the end is, we're now going to turn to look at human actions. First, we'll look at human actions themselves and human actions specifically that belong only to men, then human actions that we share in common with lower animals. Now what we're going to do is look at the principles have to understand how he's using the term principles here. That which makes something be what it is, that which affects that something. What are the principles that affect how we act? What are the things that affect how we act? That's what he's saying he needs to go on now. Having talked something about what human actions are and human passions, now we're going to talk about kind of what affects how we act. That's what he means by principles. And then he's going to make a distinction here. I know that you might start to lose the thread a little bit. We're going to wrap it up, and I think you'll be able to stick with it. Firstly, there's intrinsic principles. Secondly, there's extrinsic principles. Intrinsic means basically within man. Extrinsic basically means without. The intrinsic principle is power and habit. If you want to understand what is at the root of our acting in certain ways, we need to understand what the various powers of the soul are. And then we need to understand the realm of what are called habits. We're gonna come back and look at that here very shortly. Those are the two key intrinsic principles. Powers of soul, intellect, will, sense appetite. And then the whole realm of habits, which will be the realm of virtues and vices. Starting at question 49 then, begins his famous treatise on habits and virtues. Then, question 90, our last prologue to look at here. We have now to consider the e- extrinsic principles of human actions. Now, the extrinsic principle inclining to evil is the devil, of whose temptations we have spoken in the FP, as an abbreviation for first part. Question 114. So, interestingly, isn't it? He is highly aware that if we're going to understand how we act, we need to understand not only affecting how we act are our own powers, our own habits that we've formed, but there are things outside of us that can have a significant effect, one of them the devil. He's already talked about that in the first part, so he's not going to bring it back here. But, so what's going to be the rest of the sec- the, this first part of the second part? Watch this next sentence. It's very important. But the extrinsic principle, moving to good... Is God, who both instructs us by means of his law and assists us by his grace. Wherefore, in the first place we'll speak of law, in the second place of grace. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the beginning then. Question ninety and following this is his very famous treatise on law. Interestingly, if you if you get a book on the kind of the history of thought that gives little um, excerpts from different thinkers down through the ages—it's kind of classic now. Often, often these anthologies will have a lot of ancient thinkers, and 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 then maybe one or two things from the entire Middle Ages, and then jump right up to to modern. But. One thing that is very often quoted from St. Thomas is his famous treatise on law, which is considered to be very influential in legal theory. That is what this is right here, question 90 and following, is his treatise on law, followed by then his incredible masterpiece, his treatise on grace, which rounds out this first part. I want you to understand right here in this sentence the basis of why is he doing a treatise on law and then a treatise on grace, It's all in this context, ladies and gentlemen. We are looking at how creatures are going to go back to God. So we're looking at, first of all then, we looked at the end in the first part, in the beginning, pardon me, of the first part of the second part. Then we're starting to look at the various actions. Now we're looking at the various principles of the actions. So we need to look at what our habits are. We're going to come back and talk about that in a moment. I wanted to finish the overview first. The other thing that we're not particularly going to come back and talk much about, but I want you to have been exposed to, is this this beautiful aspect of key to our getting back where we're going, is that God is there always exercising a beautiful causality on us, especially in these two great forms, His law whereby He's instructing us, and His grace whereby He's assisting us. We are, ladies and gentlemen, perfectly designed so as to be able to return to God. But note, we are not designed to return to God simply on our own. It will constantly take our being further instructed through our entire life. God is instructing us by the means of law. And I will just note in passing a very beautiful point. You've heard of natural law. St. Thomas is the master of natural law. Very often we think of natural laws. Well, that's what you appeal to when you argue with someone who's not a Christian because you know there's natural law in them and that shows them what's good also, and so you can appeal to that to maybe make an argument. Absolutely true. But bear in mind, natural law, by St. Thomas's understanding, is something that is constantly speaking within us, written into our hearts, to which we too must be constantly attuning our ears. Not to mention further, the divine law that has been revealed through Christ, who again and again said, I say to you this, and I give you this commandment. That is an instruction again, Like unto the original instruction that's been written into our hearts, there is now this perfect completion of that in the divine revelation of Christ. That's law also. That's called the new law as opposed to the natural law. And it's all part of this amazing masterpiece of bringing us back to God. Again, according to that basic structure we saw, we need to see We need to love and then we need to act and we're going to be needing God's instruction on several levels, natural, supernatural, so that we properly see and are assisted by his grace to be able to enact these things. I leave that, if that as regards taking you through the prologues and giving you the overview, now what I'd like to do is just simply focus your attention on a couple of basic principles herein. I go back to this point of the end. I go back to the point of the end. The end is the principle that gives unity and order to our life. If there's one thing, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like you to take away from our time together here this evening, it will be an appreciation of our call To see what our end is, to love that end, to intend that end, and to make that intention of ours, of that end, be the power that gives form to everything else we do. That is what the whole structure of the second part is about. That's why he began with the end, because he's saying when we see that and we fully intend it, it will give us the rule and the measure for everything we do. May I put it to you in a sense very simply this way, ladies and gentlemen? When I say it, it will sound, oh, it sounds too easy. But at the same time, I think we'll see it's just the truth. If we really see what our life is for, if we really see that for which we've been made. The challenge of life is never anything more or less than how do I make that give form to what I do right now. That is the Christian life. How do I make that end be the rule, the measure of what I'm doing right now? And we will achieve that end by enacting it right now. We judge everything in terms of that end. Now I'm going to make a distinction, ladies and gentlemen. We all, every one of us, and every human we ever meet, I mean, this is, this is just so, so, that we, we have the same objective end. The end of human nature is essentially the same for all of us. You and I, by nature and supernature, are called to the same great perfection. And so there is a great order of life. And this is what the whole second part is about. What is the order? That comes from that end. How should that end give order to our life? But now here's an amazing thing. The word end can also be used in this way. What do you take as the end of your life? There is an objective end that is what you're made for, that is our perfection and happiness that we should be living according to, that should be giving rule and measure to everything we do. But that doesn't mean, ladies and gentlemen, here's the incredible drama, that does not mean that we will act as though that's our end. But St. Thomas does say this following Aristotle, everybody, everybody, will always be acting as though something is your end. You will have some end that is giving rule and measure to your life. Of course, the great question is, is it the end that is our own true end? In a sense, we can say all unhappiness is very simply that we are not acting for our true end. If you're interested to look at this distinction where St. Thomas explains everybody objectively has the same ultimate end, but that doesn't mean that we act that way, I just refer you to question one, article seven. Question one of the first part of the second part, question one, article seven, is where he will explain that we have the same objective, ultimate ends, though we are not necessarily all pursuing it. Now, if you would be so kind as to look at the quotation, that the title of which is the bottom of your first, first side of your page, and then you'll have to flip over to the top of the second page for the quotation. Whether, this is from question one, article five. Whether one man can have several last ends or ultimate ends. And here, I'm actually quoting the on the contrary. Remember from the structure of an article? The on the contrary is where he goes to an authority. An authority who's gonna give a position with which he agrees. And I particularly want want to focus our attention on this one because it's so beautiful. That in which a man rests as in his last at last end. What he means there by rest is that, on which you, that in which you place your delight. That's what he means there. That in which you place your delight. That which you really love. That in which a man rests as in his last end is master of his affections. Since he takes therefrom his entire rule of life. I'm going to read that sentence again. That in which a man rests, as in his last end, is master of his affections. I love that phrase. There's something, ladies and gentlemen, in all of our lives that is master of our affections. Since he takes therefrom his entire rule of life. Hence, of gluttons it is written. What 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 a horrifying thought. Philippians 3.19, whose God is their belly. <laughs> Dare I say in passing, belly might well be taken in a broader sense. I mean, is, is this far? Maybe some of us might tend to think, who could do that? Well... It's a little scary. Perhaps we don't have to look far from our own homes to. There are big problems out there as regards people making bodily desires. Play a very important part in their life. Whose god is their belly? Namely, because they place their last end in the pleasures of the belly. Now, quoting to Matthew six twenty four. So here, by the way, he's referring to. It's turning to authorities. The authorities here, of course, are Scripture. St. Paul and then our Lord. No man can serve two masters, such namely as are not ordered to one another. Therefore, it is impossible for one man to have several last ends, not ordered to one another. This is focusing our attention on, in our life, there will be something that is functioning as the ultimate end. The great question is... Is the true end functioning as end in our life? Is it master of our affections? Would you be so kind as to skip over the next quotation and look at question 108, article 4. Now, this is whether certain definite counsels are fittingly proposed in the new law. And this is about the three evangelical councils of poverty, chastity, and obedience. I'm interested... That context is not so important. I'm going to go for the heart of this quotation. Let's jump into it. Now, man is placed between the things of this world and spiritual goods wherein eternal happiness consists, so that the more he cleaves to the one, the more he withdraws from the other. And conversely, wherefore, he that cleaves wholly to the things of this world so as to make them his end... And to look upon them as the reason and rule of all he does falls away altogether from spiritual goods. I want to have you see again a very important context where St. Thomas uses this great phrase What do we take as the reason and the rule of all we do? St. Thomas is suggesting it is not uncommon that we would take something earthly as the reason and rule of our actions that most of us, you might say, gives order to our day versus does cleave, do we cleave to God? Do we cleave to spiritual things in such a way not just do we put them first, but are they the source of the order, are they the reason for everything we do? What a great examination of conscience. Does our intention to serve God give the reason and the rule for everything we do? Everything. next thing I'd like to focus on with you is the drama of human freedom. We are in control, ladies and gentlemen, of our actions. I'm going to encapsulate here in about two minutes a, a, a point that in, in teaching the, the ethics course we spend two or three days on. But I'm, I, I think we'll be able to get, get the essence of this. For you to follow up on this, I invite you to look at question six of the first part of the second part. Question six, which is on the, na- the nature of the voluntary. I would like to, to just try to bring before you very quickly the challenge, the beauty, the drama of the voluntary, that we are voluntary in our actions. What is the bottom line insight, ladies and gentlemen? It be put this way. Our actions are truly our own in a way that absolutely separates us from the lower animals. If To me, if you're ever interested to look at, give an argument, it helps make clear to people just how different we are from animals. This one I particularly like to focus on because I think it really can be seen rather straightforwardly. We hold one another responsible for our actions. We do not lower things responsible for what they do. But we hold one another responsible. Why, ladies and gentlemen, are we responsible for our actions? This is the nature of the voluntary. And you know what the neat thing is? It goes back to where we started in our being like God. Why are we voluntary? Why are our actions voluntary? Because we know, first of all, we know what we are doing. And given that we know what we are doing, our actions spring from our own understanding and our own judgments. Very simple point here, ladies and gentlemen. Our actions are profoundly our own in a way that even the higher of the other animals, even a dog... Its actions are not its own in a way that can anyway fundamentally be said the way it is of us. For we act from our own knowledge and our own desires. We see, we understand, and we will. So that our actions are our own. I just want to, I want to leave you with that phrase. Our actions, clause, are our own. That's always the key when we're talking about voluntary actions. And and, and I'd put it to you this way. The incredible challenge that you and I need to bear in mind is, let's just go ultimately. We could even do it more proximately the way we hold one another accountable. But one day, we will stand before the judgment seat of God. And we, given our having been made in his image, will be in the following situation. Uh, Imagine God, or rather, imagine God not saying this to a dog or a tree. Here you are before me. Please now render to me an account of how you have acted For where you have done well, that is to your credit. For it is yours that you have acted this way. And where you have not done well, you are responsible for what you have not done well. For those actions were yours. They flowed from your own judgments... Your own desires, your own choices. This brings us back, ladies and gentlemen, to this beautiful point of, it's about our return. We act in such a way that when we act well, stand in awe, we are worthy of praise, because you only praise the source. You don't praise trees. If you see a beautiful tree, you praise God. If you see a beautiful work of art, you don't praise the painting. You praise the one who's responsible. If you do a beautiful human action, you are the one who gets praised, or the contrary. This is at the foundation of understanding this whole thing of the return. This return is ours. Another quickie, two other quickies, and then, and, then, and, then we'll, and then we'll stop. Maybe we can look at them a little bit more in the question answer. Forming good habits. We told you there's this treatise on habits, then on virtues. Here's the bottom line synopsis on this one, ladies and gentlemen. We are creatures of habit in a rich sense of the term, habit. We are creatures of habit. We are designed. This is, part of the great, this is part of the great design. We come forth from God in such a way, watch, not only that we're rational, not only that we're volitional, but there's this unique other aspect, which I'm just going to note in passing. When we act certain ways, it makes in us a disposition to keep acting that way. I say it again, when we act a certain way, any way we act, those actions make a groove in us. They give us a disposition to keep acting that way. This is at the center, ladies and gentlemen, of understanding how we want to grow. God has designed it that our actions form grooves in us that very much determine how we will act next time that we're acting. The simple point here is we act from habit. We act from the grooves that have been formed in us by our own repeated habits, by our own repeated actions. And we might even say, Lord, why did you make it that way? Particularly when we're looking at it from the bad side. When we do bad actions, it becomes easier to do them again and hard not to do them. Why, Why is it this way? I just put this... Throw this out at you. God wants our actions to come from fundamentally who we are. He doesn't want our good actions to just come from hmm, this morning. I decided that I'd be good today. He wants our actions to stem from what we have become habitually. Because that's where his actions come from. His actions come from who he is without change. He wants our actions to come from who we are habitually. This is the the further great challenge of the moral life. Will we form the habits of being good? Always. Always consistently so that good habits flow out of us analogously to how creation flows out of God. My conclusion, ladies and gentlemen, the second article that you read for today brings in the notion of friendship. And I simply want to sound the note of friendship and I'm going to leave it as a promissory note for next time because we will have occasion to look at it more in the context of the third part. But the ends ultimately, of human beings must be cast in terms of friendship. This whole thing of, like unto God, we need to see, we need to fall in love, and then we need to act upon that. Ultimately, the context there is, we need to have seen Him, We need to have fallen in love with him. And as a result of that, we enact a friendship with him. And that is the context, ladies and gentlemen, for understanding all of the laws, all of the rules. And to me, this is the most beautiful aspect that I want to conclude with. Whenever we are struggling with, why, Lord, did you ask us to do this? Why do we have to worry about this particular thing? Why do we have to worry about that? That's so hard to do. Why did you make this commandment? I give you the closing line of the body of the article that was the second one that I assigned for today in the context of talking about obedience and the importance of obedience. For it is written He who saith that he knoweth God and keepeth not his commandments is a liar. But he that keepeth his word, in him, in very deed, the charity of God is perfected. And here's our great line. And this because friends have the same likes and dislikes. At the end of the day, the entire return is cast in terms of, will we, call to friendship with God, have the same likes and and dislikes as he does. And that is precisely to live the good life. Thank you for your attention. Thank, thank you, Dr. Cutterback. Yeah, we need our homework for next week, if you don't mind. Absolutely. All right. Tear to see your parts. Third part, Roman numeral three. The first is Question 1, Article 2. Third part, Question 1, Article 2. I'm just going to read out loud to you the, uh, the title. Whether it was necessary for the restoration of the human race that the Word of God should become incarnate. Whether it was necessary for the restoration of the human race that the Word of God should become incarnate. And then, question 40, article 1. Question 40, article 1, which is, whether Christ should have associated with men or led a solitary life. Whether Christ should have associated with men or led a solitary life. Hopefully this isn't off-topic, but uh, why, why don't uh, you know, other Christian faiths uh, get uh, Aquinas? Why don't they get him? As in what, get in the sense of understand? Or why don't they, why, why don't they appreciate him? Yeah, but yeah. I read this stuff, and I'm, yeah. I'm like, it's obvious I mean, that our faith is what it is. Well, uh, I mean, you, you asked a, a difficult question. I, I do not have an answer for that. Um, w- w- why? Uh, w- why don't we get it? You know, is <laughs> a is it, a good it's a good question. Also, right. but thank you. I was going to ask whether anybody prior to Thomas's work on this summa had structured things more or less like this. But I'm wondering: is the Summa contra Gentiles similarly structured? And even if it is, did anyone precede Thomas in this kind of arrangement or sequence? Um, uh, Starting with the second of the summa contra gentiles, Um, there is a similarity there. It's a little bit different because the points of the Summa Contra Gentiles is to follow an order that would be able to be used in those who don't accept the first principles of the faith. So this, of course, is a Summa of Theology where you do accept the principles of the faith. So this is much more of a systematic work that will be setting forth fundamentally the science, whereas Summa Contra Gentiles is more to be a manual when you are going out to preach to discuss with those who don't accept the first principles. I don't know, I would be loath to say that there hadn't been anyone who had done something along these lines. My historical studies are not, are not in-depth enough to be able to say there wasn't anything like it. My sense is this is what St. Thomas, that structure is what he is particularly known for. So I, I think it's safe to say that that is particularly his genius and insight, though he himself would be always one to point to, I get these things from my masters. I can't tell you for sure historically that there wasn't some precedent for it. I don't know. Or, or Well, somebody might know. I don't. But, but <laughs> you and I don't know. That's right. That's right. Thank you for that just want to check if you had gotten an answer to my question from last week of uh, some <laughs> the the various summa of the summas that are out there, and um, if you had a chance to research that. Well, I um, interestingly, I, I did not research research that as much as I'd like to. I was actually just Thanks. looking again at the – well, I'm, I will tell you this. I was just looking at a tour of the summa by Monsignor Glan. And one thing that I do like about that is that it, it, it follows – the, um, as opposed to some other kind of summations of the Suma, it, it follows very closely the questions. Such that if you are reading that little summary there, and you realize you want to follow something up further, you can you know exactly where to go in the Suma for a follow up. So a tour of the Suma by Monsignor Glenn, I, I, I think, is, is is worthwhile. And I'll I'll look and see whether I want to say anything further on that to you na- next time. No one else has a question. I'm gonna I got something I'll say myself, but okay, no, please, gotta, Peter. Okay. Okay. See, <laughs> um, love act as a, as a former Protestant. It strikes me that the Protestants stopped at C. Um, did they ever comment directly on Aquinas? Do you, Do you know? S- pro- d- there d- are the some great Protestant lovers of Saint Thomas. Um, I, 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 it's not my strong point to tell you, kind of historically, who who has commented on them. I mean, in in general. He has been studied by he had, um, in Catholic institutions. There's, there's no d- doubt about that, um, and, I mean, and, and he is so unabashedly Catholic that you know that that is always going to affect how non-Catholics will see him. But there, but nonetheless, I'm, I'm, I'm often amazed that the, the the beauty, the order, his the clarity of explanation of things often does appeal to other Christians. And I honestly think that a lot of um, good-hearted, well-intentioned Christians like ourselves could could benefit much more from looking at it more closely. Can I? I want. I want. There was a quotation that I forgot to give you, and I'm. I'm, not, I'm not, I won't keep you more than another twenty minutes. <laughs> Just kidding. Won't keep you more than another twenty seconds. Here's a quotation, and it is from Saint Bede the Venerable. It's talking about a saint you've never heard of, probably called Saint Chad, and this is the great. This is the great line that he said. St. Bede, talking about St. Chad, he was so mindful of his last end in all that he did. He was so mindful of his last end in all that he did. I present for your consideration that is a beautiful encapsulation of the second part of the Summa. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Kinabay.
0: Pray for us.